Let's cultivate our motivation. So it's important to recognize the afflictions as our enemies and not other sentient beings. The afflictions uh, are never kind to us. Other sentient beings are. But the afflictions often pretend to be kind to us. Attachment says, I'm your friend, I make you feel happy. And anger says, I'm your friend, I make you feel powerful. And so on and on and on. And in our ignorance, we often just follow the afflictions. They give the marching orders and we march. And we wind up marching again and again in samsara. So that's why it's important to see the afflictions not as our friends, but as very clever and deceptive enemies that really destroy our happiness and make us do things that harm others' happiness as well. So seeing that the afflictions are not the nature of the mind, that they're based on misconceptions, then we know that they can be eliminated. And having met the Buddha Dharma with its clear teachings about how to counteract the afflictions, then we have the tools we need to go about and liberate ourselves from them and to help others liberate themselves as well. So let's generate the motivation to do just that, to liberate ourselves and all sentient beings from the destructive control and manipulation of the afflictions. So our friend Ramesh from Bangalore wrote in a couple of questions, and I thought we'd go through them first. So he said, 
uh, I've been reflecting on the root afflictions and auxiliary afflictions that you've covered in the last few weeks. I was noticing how many of them are based on the division of self and others. Okay, for example, various types of pride, jealousy, miserliness, pretension, inconsideration for others, to name a few. So how much those afflictions rise when in our mind there's me and there's other. Okay, so, you know, I'm proud over others. I'm jealous of others. I'm miserly miserly and don't want to give things to them. I have deceit and pretension in order to impress others. Okay, I'm inconsiderate of others in terms of uh, I don't refrain from negative actions knowing that my actions may cause them to lose faith. Okay, so by this original division into self and others, then so many afflictions come up because we want to impress others, we want we compare ourselves to them, we want to be better than them, we want to protect ourselves from them, we want them to give us happiness. Yeah. Do, do you see what he's getting at here? And how much, uh, you know, the other sentient beings become the object of our afflictions, mm-hmm. which is not their fault, okay? We have the seeds of the afflictions that generate the stories about them. But we write a lot of stories about other beings, many more stories about other people than we do about inanimate objects, don't we? Yeah. I mean, we may not get an inanimate object that we want, yeah, but inanimate objects don't notice our faults and point them out. And inanimate objects are not better than us. Okay, we can't really compete with them. So I think many more afflictions arise. We don't know, I mean, who tries, you, do you try and impress your cup? <laughs> or, or, you know, impress your meditation cushion? Oh, cushion, you should feel so privileged you have me sitting on you, you know. We don't do that to a meditation cushion, but we do that with other people. Oh, you're very privileged to have me on your team or to have my affection or whatever it is. Okay, if we start seeing, at least on the intellectual level, others as equal to us in wanting happiness and not wanting suffering, we would be able to counteract these afflictions and avoid engaging in harmful actions? Question mark. Would we be able to do that? It certainly seems like that. If we really care about others, we see they want happiness, they don't want suffering, and we also want them to have happiness and not suffering. Yeah, When we sincerely want that, then that can act as a counterforce for us acting out a lot of our afflictions on them. Yeah. Okay. But as soon as we don't see other people as living beings with feelings, 
then they just become tools for us to use so that we can feel powerful and feel better about ourselves and all of that. Okay? So the thing is really, you know, to care about other living beings and not see them as like inanimate objects that are only there for our benefit and our happiness and our pleasure. Okay, so I think he's quite right here, you know. If we uh, spend some more time on the bodhicitta motivations, meditations, that will, you know, influence uh, us in terms of how much we feed a lot of our afflictions that are in relationship to others. Okay, can you see how that might work in your practice? I mean, if you really meditate on other sentient beings wanting happiness and not suffering, then when you get mad at them, if you remember that, when you get mad at them, then you'll say, oh, I don't want to dump my anger all over them. But when we don't remember that, when we're mad at them, then, you know, we spit our anger out, we punch people, we do all sorts of things, okay? Because we forget that, you know, they want happiness and not suffering just like us. Okay, then he went on, he said, uh, in the last Friday teaching, when you described in the second schema how the base, how based on the view of the personal identity, um, which is a form, seeing view of the personal identity as a form of ignorance and as a root of cyclic existence, then discrimination or distinction between self and others arises. It became more evident that acting as a basis to trigger afflictions and and, uh, make us engage in actions that harm others now and maybe actions that harm them in the long term too, and uh, create problems for uh, the self in the long term. Okay, so uh, how how ignorance and view of the personal identity feed the afflictions and then make us do these things that cause problems to self and others. So in a re- so that became more obvious to him. On a related note, it is uh, is it why the development of equanimity as the basis for cultivating bodhicitta is emphasized in the two methods of generating bodhicitta? Okay, and especially in equalizing and exchanging self and others. Um, yeah, again, I think for the same reason. Because when we develop equanimity between uh, friend, enemy, and stranger, and then when we practice equalizing self and others so that we see our happiness and others' happiness as equal in importance, both of those meditations are going to make us more aware of our, the effect of our actions on others And that kind of awareness breeds um, more introspective awareness. And 
so that we can counteract the afflictions and, again, not, you know, dump them all over other sentient beings. So I thought that was quite interesting how he is relating things from uh, usually the middle scope of teachings with some of the teachings in the advanced scope. And this is really when you begin to, uh, what happens when you begin to understand the Lamrim quite well, is you see how different meditations from all three scopes affect each other and amplify each other and nourish each other. Yeah, and uh, that's a whole level, a different level of understanding the Lamrim than we had before. Okay, uh, so then we'll continue from last week. I want to review because we left right off in the middle of a section. Um, so we were on the sections of uh, factors causing afflictions to arise. Okay, and uh, you know, we're still hoping for science to produce that pill that we take so that afflictions uh, will not get. Uh, acted out and that so that they won't even arise in our mind and then we will have liberation by pill <laughs> okay and all you have to do is pop a pill and you know there go the afflictions go bye-bye okay so you know then you'll have your Tylenol um, anti-affliction pill and your ibuprofen that that uh, what does ibuprofen do? It, it reduces the inflammation, so your mind won't get inflamed by the afflictions. Okay, well, we're waiting. Don't get your hopes up. Okay, so the factors causing afflictions to arise, there's six of them that are listed here. And uh, the more we are aware of these, the more we can uh, have that introspection that monitors what's going on with our body, speech, and mind. Okay, so the first one is the seeds of the afflictions. Okay, so the seeds of the afflictions are the basic, or, or one of the basic causes, I should say, because if we didn't have the seeds of the afflictions, then we would never have manifest afflictions. So what the seeds of affliction mean is it's a potency, yeah, so that that connects one moment of affliction to another moment of affliction. So for example, if I am angry now and I stop being angry, okay, that stopping of my anger is not freedom from anger altogether because all I need is some other circumstance, and I will get angry again. So why is that? Because the seed of the anger is in my mind. If there were no seed of anger, then I would get angry, my anger would stop, that's it. No continuum. Why are there continuums of the afflictions? Because of these seeds. So the seeds are the potential that carry, that link one moment to, to the next moment. 
And that's why when we talk about the uh, afflictions or the afflictive obscurations, the things that need to be eliminated to attain liberation, uh, then we say the afflictions and their seeds. Okay, so it's not, that means that it's not sufficient just to suppress an affliction. Yeah, we have to actually take the seed out so that it can never occur again. Okay, but as an example, you know, all the nap weeders around here, yeah, you know that you can pull a nap napweed plant out, but if it's already flowered and the seeds have scattered, you pull one out and, you know, next year you're going to have 15 of them. Yeah. I'd like to ask, usually when we talk about that formula of ignorance, giving rise to distorted attention, giving rise to afflictions, giving rise to actions, and those actions leave seeds on the mind stream. Usually, I think we refer to them as seeds of karma. Those are seeds of karma. Yeah. But there's seeds of karma and there's seeds of afflictions, and they're different. Yes, but wouldn't that scenario also place seeds of afflictions on the mind as well? When we have uh, a, a... In when, that scenario. Okay. The, we have to do an action to put the seeds of karma on the mind. An affliction arising in the mind is not necessarily an action. Yes, but in those instances where there are actions, there are also afflictions in the mind. They, it seems like they would also be planting yeah, seeds of Yeah, then you might, if, if you had, let's say, a very strong uh, anger arise in the mind, and then you started plotting how you're going to retaliate and get even, then you're plotting the retaliation becomes a mental action. That mental action is going to leave a seed of, uh, it, it, it's actually, it's going to be a pathway of karma. Whereas the affliction, you know, when it dies out, it has the seed of karma, of the seed of afflictions. It, it, yeah, I'm. I'm not quite sure what what the puzzle is for you, because actions and afflictions are two different things. The way I understand, yes, but there is an affliction in the mind when you're creating an action. So yes. it seems like it's doing both at the same time. And usually, when we talk about the results of those negative actions or pathways of actions, we talk about them in terms of the results of karma. But it seems like another result would be you have this potential for affliction in your mind as well. Yeah, then? Uh, I just never thought about it like that. <laughs> uh -huh. While we're at it, um, <laughs> this thing about seeds, I hear you talking about it in, in the singular sense, like the seed of anger, whereas I had had the impression that we can have many seeds of anger. And I got that idea after hearing Geshe explain this, and maybe I misunderstood, but somehow I thought it, it's like 
with um, with the knapweed. You know, you have one knapweed plant, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it can produce many seeds. And so I was thinking, well, okay, if I get angry 50 times in an hour, then uh, there would be 50 seeds of uh, anger for each of those instances. Yeah. I, I've never understood it that way. Um, we may have to ask a mathematician about it. <laughs> but the, the thing is, with a seed of karma, when it ripens, that seed of karma is finished and it has no power. But the seed of afflictions never finishes. Its power never goes out of existence until that affliction and the seed are uprooted from the mind. And that happens on the Arya paths. Okay. So there's only one seed of anger. I, I don't know. I haven't counted them <laughs> as kids. No, I just, I, just, I just find that puzzling to think there's only one seed of anger because we can get angry so many times. Yeah. And, and I would have thought each moment, each yeah. instance of anger. I, I think that's seen? a geshe question. I, I, yeah. I can't okay. answer it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've never thought about that one. Yeah. I mean, it seems it would function equally as well with one seed. Yeah, because the whole idea is that the affliction has not been eliminated in our mind. Yeah. So with karma, there's the idea that we plant a new seed on the mind. With the, the seeds of afflictions, there's more the idea that the, you know, the energy of the anger it the, goes into a potential and is still there. It's not like something new is planted on the mind, but rather something continues. At least that's the sense I get from it. Okay. Can I ask another way? <laughs> you can ask. I'm not promising an answer. <laughs> well, when you said about the seed of karma, when that once that karma has ripened, it's finished, it won't bring any more results. Yeah. Don't we say that a single action, like an act of killing, can bring many, many results? Many results, yeah. Over many lifetimes. Right. So after all those results, after the power of that seed of karma is exhausted, then there's there's no more. Okay, but then, okay, just, just if you think it's confusing now, wait until we get to chapter. <laughs> oh, this, oh, it's the next chapter. Is it the next chapter? Yes, it is the next chapter. Chapter five Afflictions and Karma, their seeds and latencies. Okay, then you can really let your confusion go. Because it's, it's, yeah. Because then we also get into the, uh, the zhikpas. Yeah, the having happened or having ceased of different things. And, um, yeah. <laughs> I just remember working, you know, on, this is an area where I asked His Holiness a lot of questions when, when working on the book. And sometimes he had, Samdong Rinpoche was there, and, and then he would invite sometimes Geshe's, two or three Geshe's from uh, the dialectic school or, you know, other Geshe's that live in Dharamsala. 
And then I'd ask a question. They would all, especially on this topic, just really get into it. And then the session with His Holiness would end, and we'd all go sit in the in the like anteroom, you know, the room where you where you wait. And then the debate would continue, and you know, and I'm sitting there. It's like I just want one clean, clear answer, you know, that I can give to you people so that you're going to be satisfied. And they're like, but this and but that, and there's a this and there's a that, and is there's a shikpa? Is there a shikpa of a shikpa? Is there a shikpa of a seed? Is there a seed of a shikpa? You know. And then at the end, uh, it's all laughter. That's usually the conclusion of one of these big debates. Is we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But it's great because to me, when I see that, it's like, okay, you develop your intelligence really trying to analyze all these things, but it's really hard conceptually to put everything into nice, neat little boxes where it is only this and that is only that and there's no overlap and everything's very clean, clear, and it makes sense to every single sentient being. Yeah? That, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we do, that, that kind of thing very seldom came out of the debates. Yeah? So I think... You know, debate is not just to uh, arrive at the one correct answer, but it's a pedagogical tool to make you think, yeah, even though you don't come up with that one exact. Yeah. Uh-huh. Would it be helpful to remember that seeds are a metaphor? So it's not like there's going to be literal seeds somewhere and we can talk about this as if it's like a actual yeah. thing it's it's yeah. more of like a pointing at something right so you can't get too nitty-gritty right right okay yeah i mean we have to remember that a lot of times when we talk about mental things that lack form since our language is so based on material things that a lot of the words we use you know grasp to a true existence what you grasp it you go like that. Now I Now I got my true existence. No, it's, grasp is it's a word we use for physical things, but it's here acti indicating activity of the mind. So, like you pointed out, same with seed. You know, it's not you know it's not like a, you know one centimeter long and uh, you know purple with with pink dots on it. And uh, there it is. There's your mind stream. Okay, here's your mind stream. And you have all these seeds on it. And, you know, do you have to take them out with the tweezers? Or uh, do you just cut off uh, the, the top layer of your mind and throw them all out? So, yeah, it's using words for physical things that uh, to indicate things that, that are not physical at all. Okay, so seeds of karma. <laughs> so because they remain on our mind streams and go from one life to the next, we are not free from afflictions. So that's the function of the seeds. 
okay? They, they keep us, they keep the afflictions in our mind stream. And an external or internal factor can stimulate these seeds to give rise to manifest afflictions. So that an external factor, oh, you, you know, you're meditating, yeah, it's very good, very quiet, okay? Then you hear a noise, okay? That's an external factor. Then the affliction arises. Who's that jerk making noise and disturbing me when I'm meditating? Okay? One small external stimuli. Poof. Okay. Internal stimuli. You heard that noise. And then it's fine for a while. And then you think, oh, that noise reminds me of some music I heard. And I heard that music when I was dating so-and-so. And we had this wonderful relationship. And then you were off in la-la land, daydreaming about the relationship. And attachment is running rampant in your mind because of the internal memory. Okay? So you see this all the time in your meditation sessions, don't you? Yeah, until it's interrupted by. (laughs) End of daydream, folks. (laughs) Okay, the second factor that causes afflictions to arise is contact with particular objects. So they can stimulate the afflictions. Okay, so attachment arises uh, when there's good food in front of us, when there's an attractive person, when we get, uh, you know, the letters saying we got hired for a job or admitted to a certain school or, you know, something like that. Anger springs up when we're around people who have those horrible political views that are so disgusting, you know, such that we just hear their name and we are angry. Yeah, have you ever had that happen in meditation? Yeah, meditation peaceful meditation. Then a story, you know, you read in the news or something somebody said to you, Or you remember somebody who hurt your feelings before. That thought comes in your mind. Okay. So contact with certain objects. So this is one of the things when we take monastic precepts, we are admitting our weakness. Okay. Because we know that when we encounter certain objects, our mind gets out of control. Okay? And we know that about ourselves. And we know that for that reason, it's much better for us not to be in contact with certain objects. And so our monastic precepts, you know, help with that help us to keep a distance from the objects 
that trigger our emotions. This is not because the objects or the people are bad. It's because our mind is uncontrolled. And having those precepts that interfere with the contact, okay, it isn't so that we avoid those issues. It's so that we have some mental peace where we can really go into our meditation and understand those afflictions and learn the antidotes to them and really make our mind familiar with the antidotes. Okay, that's the reason why we stay clear of certain activities or certain kind of things. Okay, because our mind is just goes bananas and we need that space to develop the antidotes. Mm -hmm. So we have to be very careful and not blame things on the object. Yeah. I think that, uh, okay, that this often happens with, uh, at least it appears to be uh, something that's happening. When they talk about women in the scriptures, they're talking to a male audience. So they often talk about women are this and women are that, da, 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 da. The idea being that, uh, you know, if you're very attracted to something, then you think of the negative qualities, then that lowers your attachment. But then with some people, instead of seeing that way of talking in the scriptures as a technique to help them, they start thinking it's the women's fault for making them aroused. And that is very common in uh, practically all cultures. You know, when a man is aroused and he doesn't want to be and he misbehaves, whose fault is it? Not his. You know, it's hers. As if she deliberately did this, you know. And uh, and then the women often wind up feeling terrible about themselves or terrible about their bodies when actually this is a problem of the men. Yeah. So I was, um, uh, just to give you a modern example of this, there was a movement, and to some extent it's still going on. It's called the purity movement. And it's where... Uh, when I stayed uh, in, um, when Guy Newland invited me to speak at his university, the person I stayed with, this was what her specialty, what she was uh, researching. And it's a thing where women promise their purity, yeah, their virginity, uh, in some kind of ceremony. Uh, and their fathers are there. So they have father-daughter balls so that instead of going out with your boyfriend and hanging out in the back seat with him, then you go, they, you know, to like a prom kind of thing with your dad. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, does your dad know how to dance? Okay. No. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. So and and that these balls they have 
these ceremonies where the girls go up, they're teenage girls, and they vow, you know, to not have any sexual relationships before they're married, okay? And so uh, recently, uh, what I saw was something recent. There, At the time when this was really, really popular, there was one young man who was also a teenager at the time, who was really hyped up on that, and he used to give talks to other teenagers because nothing works better. You don't want an adult telling you to be celibate, you know, but another teenager, and he would go in front, and there were videos, they showed videos, clips, of what he was like back then, and this young boy and saying, girls, you have to realize, you know, that we just look at you and we get aroused and you have to take care and not bring that out in us. And this whole thing of blaming the girls. And then it talks about how the girls, hearing this, especially from a boy their age, just felt like they hated their bodies. You know, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my body that I don't even, I'm just walking down the street not doing anything, and I'm so bad that I bring this out in the guise. And how damaging psychologically that was to those girls, even when they grew up to become women and when they finally got married and so and so. You know, uh, just the problems they they had with their own self-esteem because of that. And so this guy who was the teenage boy who did that, now he's an adult and he is apologizing for what he, he said and did. Okay. But the girls are still experiencing the results. So that often happens, you know, uh, and it's not, this is a very obvious situation in which it happens. But uh, normally, we do blame our afflictions on other people. What do we say? Okay, you made me angry. Okay, who's responsible for my, for my anger? Not me. You made me angry. Okay, my anger is your fault. You're responsible. Yeah, so you have to change, and you have to apologize, and you have to stop doing that because you're the one who's triggering my anger. Okay, so it's not just, you know, blaming women for guys getting turned on. It's, it's you know, everybody blaming whoever we're angry at for our own anger. Okay. So it's hard to take responsibility for our own afflictions. It is so much easier to blame somebody else or something else. Isn't it? Yeah? So much easier. But that keeps us in samsara. Because as long as it's somebody else's fault... As long as we need somebody else to apologize, then we're stuck. Because we can't make them apologize. We can't make them take responsibility. You know, we're totally stuck. 
So it's really only when we take responsibility as damaging to our ego as that is, that we can really change and free ourselves from all of that. Okay, making some sense to people? Okay, then the third thing that uh, causes our afflictions to arise, detrimental influences, such as bad friends. Okay, so bad friends are often what we call good friends. Okay, because good friends want us to be happy. So they want to take us out to the movies. They want to go on vacation with us. They want to take us out to, you know, Broadway shows or uh, I don't know what else people do. Oh, they all go out drinking at the bar. So your good friends want to take you out for a drink or they want to give you some dope to smoke or, you know, they want to do something, okay, to make you happy. And uh, and they think they're doing this because they're, they care about us and they're going to make us happy. And we follow along because, well, they're my friends. And if I don't do that, they'll be unhappy. And they're so kind to me. And what they're saying is really true. I am too uptight. So it really would be good for me to go on a vacation to the Bahamas and stay in a five-star hotel and relax a bit. And, you know, I was planning on going on a meditation retreat, but my friend is right. I'm just going to sit there and look at my belly button, wash some dishes in the kitchen. You know, uh, better, I, you know, it's really better I, I go to the Bahamas and, and just chill out. Hmm? Okay. So, uh, you know, we say here, adults recognize the strong influence of peer pressure on children, but they seldom take stock of the extent to which their own emotions and behavior are affected by the wish to be part of a group and the desire not to be seen as strange or different from others. Okay, so in your workplace, you want to fit in with everybody. So on one Monday morning, when everybody's talking about what they did over the weekend, you want to say something similar so that you fit in and you're part of the group. Yeah, and on Friday, when people are talking about what they're going to do on the weekend, similarly, you know, whatever your friends are doing, then you say you're going to do the same thing. We're very susceptible to, to peer pressure. Yeah, even though we pretend it's only teenagers that are. <laughs> it's not just teenagers, it's adults, okay? Because we want to belong. And, but we don't. We aren't honest with ourselves. We don't say, it's because I want to belong. It's because they're inviting me, and if I don't accept, their feelings will be hurt. They want me to drink. If I don't drink, then they'll think it's because I'm Buddhist, and they'll have a very bad view of Buddhist, Buddhism, and I don't want them to create that negative karma, thinking Buddhism is bad. Okay. So for their spiritual benefit, I will drink, and then they will know that you can be a Buddhist and also relax and have fun, and they'll like Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Sounds good, right? 
Yeah? Yeah? Or my Buddhist friends are, you know, they're all taking, how do you say it, haya, hayawaska? Hayawaska? Did I say it right? They're taking hayawaska. They're having these fantastic experiences. They're, they're going through a death experience. It's just like, you know, when they talk about the different bardos, this is just it. I get to experience it in 20 minutes on a ayahuasca trip. No, that, I mean, somebody sent me something about it. 20 minutes. So it doesn't even take a long time. Yeah? And, and then your friends are doing it, and you have this incredible experience of letting go and your mind being expansive and it helped my dharma practice so much and all my friends are going to do this ayahuasca thing so i want to go with them because it sounds really good and it's spiritual it's going to help my dharma practice yes it's going to be the pill and I don't even need a prescription for it. Yeah. So there we go. Okay. So there's all sorts of things. Um, we go home to a family dinner. Yeah. And, and some relative has some pipe dream about making a million dollars on some upstart company. And uh, they're buying stock in that company. And they're offering us the chance to buy stock in the, that company, too. Is, is this how the dot-com bubble kind of burst, too? People were buying all this stock in dot-coms? Is that how it worked? Yeah. And, and so, you know, people are offering this to you. It's great. It's such a super way to make a lot of money. My friends are so kind. Yeah. They're giving me this option to buy the stock. I'll make a lot of money. Then I will be able to make a lot of dana to Buddhist centers. Yeah? Right now, I can't offer very much. I don't have very much. But I will make money on this stock. And then I will create merit by giving it to dharma centers, to monasteries, to my teachers. I can't tell you how many people have told me that's why they're going to go out and get a job so that they can make give more donna. Thank goodness I didn't hold my breath. <laughs> yeah, never happened. So, you know, but the point is that we uh we want to fit in, and so we want a good reputation, so we do what we think other people think we should do. And if that isn't confusing, yeah, I can do it one more time, okay? We do what we think other people think we should do. Okay? And then we try and become what we think they think we should be. Okay? So whoever we're trying to impress, we act the way we think they want us to act. We speak the way we think they want us to speak. 
We do all sorts of activities so that we can be with them so that they will like us. And we even do many things that go against our own moral uh, standards. We do things that we don't enjoy. And then we pretend to enjoy them. All because we're seeking approval or praise or reputation and status. Okay. So this is quite amazing. So uh, Geshe Nawandargi um, used it whenever he talked about bad friends. He said, they aren't people with horns on their heads that come to get you. You know, they're the people with smiling faces who wish you well. But because they have a worldly view on life, they don't have a viewpoint taking into consideration karma, rebirth. They don't have any knowledge of samsara, anything like that. Then they wish us well and they're, they are wanting us to join them in all the samsaric perfections. Okay? So they're not bad people who want to harm us, but because they really have quite a different view on life than we do, they easily take us away from the path. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, I told you, I think I told this group... Uh, about the the man who came to the Abbey a, f- a few years ago, and he had had a drug problem. He came here. He was clean the whole time. He did really, really well. And then he said, I want to go back and see if I can do so well in the place where I came from. And he went back, and he was with his old friends again. And a few months after that, we got news that he OD'd. Yeah, Ryan, remember? So, um, yeah, that that's what happens. Yeah, it's very interesting to see. You know, we had one other person who, who came here, again, so clear, very, very good. You know, he was here for a retreat. He was so cooperative, so good. Took the five precepts, really sincere, went back home a week later, wrote and said, I'm giving back my intoxicant precept. Okay. And I could go on and on about this, but it's illustrating a point, and I think it's an important point. Okay, then the fourth one is verbal stimuli. So this means uh, uh, material that communicates things. So it means news, books, TV, internet, radio, magazines, films, social media, and on and on and on. Okay, all those things. And that really impacts our thoughts and emotions. So in recent years, the media has become a prominent conditioning force in our lives. And we are exposed to hundreds, if not thousands, of advertisements each day. So I remember years ago, you know, in contemplating this thing about the media, 
it was only how we're influenced by advertisements. Yeah. And just thinking how, uh, you know, you look at the ads and you say, do I look like the people in those ads? They're so attractive. You know, somebody in our discussion group yesterday brought up all this imprinting that women get about how we have to look. And, you know, they're so attractive and I don't look like that and I should look like that. And so, it, you know, it was more about, yeah, looking like models and also having the right laundry soap so that somebody will love you. And in addition to the right laundry soap, the, you know, dandruff uh, shampoo, you know, those are the two things, the two, oh, and, and deodorant. Okay. Well, yeah, deodorant, that makes sense. Dandruff, I don't know about, you know, do you not like people because they have dandruff? <laughs> yeah. And God forbid you're married and you have a ring around the toilet. That's going to destroy your marriage. Do you remember those, those ring around the toilet? I don't know. I think some of you are too young for those commercials. Yeah. Yeah. Ring around the collar. It was ring around the No. No, there was also ring around the toilet. <laughs> huh? No, but there were lots of things. I mean, yeah, you better not have a ring around your toilet or ring around your collar. <laughs> okay, you want a ring around your finger. <laughs> okay. So, you know, it was all that kind of thing that you got through social media. Now, or not social media, through media in general. Now, with Facebook and social media and this kind of stuff, my goodness, it's not just looks and, you know, stuff to clean your toilet with and, and to clean your clothes with. It's, I mean, QAnon. What's QAnon's basic way of spreading its views? Social media. Yeah, the big lie. What's the basic way of spreading that? Social media. Yeah, all these kinds of things now telling us not just how to look and what to buy, but what truth is. And you can make up any single thing you want to make up and put it out on social media and you will find people who believe it. You know? And so uh, what I find especially interesting is now, you know, all the people who don't agree with the conservatives, now they're all commies. You know? I mean, commies, they used to be commies when we were young. You know, anybody who you didn't like was a commie. Yeah? And now it's anybody who's a Democrat. They're a commie, they're a socialist. Any policy that they uh, propose is, is socialism, and we've got to stop them. And the other side, any policy they propose is fascist. Yeah? 
And so we can't even talk to each other. And, uh, can, you know, I mean, f fake news. I mean, fake news has always been in society. When you really think about it, we've been taught fake news since we were, like, this big. Okay? So much of what we learn is fake news. But now fake news is just really taking over and totally blinding people, you know? And you hear stories of, uh, or see interviews of kids whose parents have gone down the rabbit hole of QAnon and they've lost their parents. Their parents are so into, you know, the internet, watching the internet, developing, everybody's theories and what this means and that means and the other thing and then sharing their theories and all of this. And then, you know, their whole life is spent doing that. And then they have a new circle of friends because they were in the pandemic and they weren't with their other friends. Now they have lots of Q friends, not new friends, Q friends. Yeah. And uh, and their families suffer because of it, not to mention how the country suffers and those people suffer. Okay? It's really, you know, when, when you stand back now and, and look at what's going on, it's, it's totally crazy. Totally crazy, you know? And uh, anyway. Okay. So the daily news influences our thoughts and can easily provoke strong emotions. And everybody has to have an opinion about everything they read in the news or see in the news. Okay? So you have to have an opinion. Because what else are you going to tweet about? Okay. So the big thing now is Simone... Biles, the U.S. great greatest of all times gymnast who went to Tokyo to you know win her gold medals in gymnastics. On her first thing, she didn't perform well, and she she said, "I'm not going to do the rest because I'm not in the right mental state." and I'll get hurt. Okay, so she withdrew from competing in the Olympics, or at least in some events, and everybody has an opinion about it. Okay. Most people are, are saying, good for her. She knew her limits. She knew, you know, she... Yeah, she knew her, what she could do and what she couldn't do, and she knew she'd get hurt, and she withdrew. Okay. and the, But then, of course, other people have... Okay. So, uh, yeah. So now, you know, we're entitled to have all sorts of opinions about other people's lives when we don't know anything about those people. Mm. So it's weird. It's a good motivation not to be famous, I think. You know, when Bill Gates 
you know, when Bill and Melinda split, oh my goodness, you know, forget what is happening with Simone. Bill, everybody had their opinions about Bill and, and Melinda. Can you imagine having your divorce all over the newspaper and everybody talking about it and everybody having their own diagnosis of, you know, well, Bill was doing this and oh, she would have wanted this. And, oh, ma, now this is going to happen. And, oh, my goodness. Yeah. And can you imagine that happening on your private life? Everybody having their own opinion and they don't even know you? Okay. So with the constant display of sexual images and violent pictures that we are exposed to from childhood, yeah, they have studies of how many pornographic images children have seen by certain ages. Yeah. And how that gives children their idea of what sex means between adults. Okay, so with all that, it's no wonder that attachment and hostility flare up so easily and frequently that we stop noticing them. Yeah. Then number five is habitual ways of thinking and habitual emotions. Okay, so these self-replicate in the future. The more familiar we are with certain afflictions and wrong views, the more we see them as true and reinforce them. Okay, the more we hear certain things on the media, the more we believe them. Okay, and so that's why everybody listen, you know, everybody has their own news station so that you listen to what you already believe in and it reinforces what you believe. Mm -hmm. And that's why when we have problems, we go to our friends, because our friends are supposed to side with us when we have problems. So they repeat back to us how we already think, and then that just reinforces our negative you know, thought pattern. Someone accustomed to concealing his or her faults and misdeeds will continue this mindset, making it more difficult to change. Okay. Resentment and belligerence arise easily in someone who is familiar with anger and has never applied counterforces to it. For this reason, it's advisable to learn and apply antidotes to our habitual afflictions and behaviors because they are the most troublesome. Yeah, so that's why I said before, think of the, the things that cause the most problem in your life. And they're usually habitual ones and focus on those. Okay. I was thinking here uh, also about the people that I correspond with in prison. Yeah, and certain habitual ways of thinking and habitual emotions. 
And often they learn certain things when they're on the streets and then they come to prison and they have that same attitude. Yeah. And that that is really tragic. That is very, very tragic. Yeah. There was... Uh, there was one book I read, no matter, no matter how loud I scream. Oh, no, yeah, that's right. No matter how loud I shout. Do we have it in our library? Yeah. So it's about the juvenile system in L.A. in the 1990s. And uh, the title came from one young man who was in the juvenile system. And the meaning of the title is he was calling out to the world around him, saying, I have problems, help me. But nobody really recognized he had problems. They usually saw him as a kid who was acting out. And it was basically he didn't have any kind of vision of what his life could be. And that's what really comes through in this book, that the young people who grow up in bad circumstances, uh, you know, they're, they're conditioned. This is, they see the lives of the adults around them, and that is their vision of what they can become. And so they develop that habitual way of thinking about the possibility of their own lives, and then they act that out even when they're quite young. Okay. And that that young man, I, I corresponded with him for a while. And, uh, you know, you could tell he was quite a, a sensitive young man, but he was so damaged by uh, his environment and the, and being in prison. So, yeah, because, and especially, so you can see here, when you see young people who get involved with gangs, you can find so many of these, the seed of afflictions, contact with certain objects, detrimental friends, okay, verbal stimuli, habitual ways of thinking, and then distorted attention is the last one. And these, these are the things that uh, afflict the kids in gangs. And they afflict everybody who's not in gangs also. We shouldn't just look at kids in gangs and say, oh, well, that's why they're like that, you know. Those beep, 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 and call them a bunch of names. But, you know, hey, the, these same mechanisms are working in our lives. Too. It's just that they had uh, circumstances, outer circumstances, I think, that were a lot worse than the ones that many of us uh, had. Okay, so habitual ways of thinking and habitual emotions. Yeah, so anytime anybody dares to even insinuate that we didn't put the spatula back in the right place, which is a cardinal sin at the Abbey. 
then we blow up. You know what spatulas are. Yeah. So there are certain places you put spatulas. And if you put them in the wrong place, this is a metaphor. But, I mean, people blew up over the spatulas. That's why I talk about it. But anything, anybody dare insinuate that we did less than perfect on, then we have every right to explode. Okay? And you're always picking on me. Why are you giving me that? Why are you making me do this? And we're angry and we put it out there. Or, ah, 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 my feelings are hurt. Ah. <laughs> okay? Habitual patterns, aren't they? Yeah? And um, we, you know, you could almost, when you get to know people really well, we can do a lot of really good skits about their habitual patterns. And that makes them even madder. <laughs> because we aren't supposed to notice their habitual patterns. Yeah? We aren't supposed to notice. They act that way all the time, but, you know, oh, no, you, you, don't, you don't do that. <laughs> okay. And then the sixth one is our old friend, distorted attention, also translated as distorted conceptions. Okay, or namtok is another, <laughs> yeah. Namtok includes a lot of different things. Okay, so distorted conceptions misinterprets events, superimposes attractive and unattractive qualities onto people and objects objects, projects motivations and meanings on other people's words and activities. I know why you looked at me that way. You meant. Have you ever had somebody tell you, you know, diagnose you for something, what your motivation was and what you did, and you're going, huh, what in the world are they talking about? But we never do that with other people. Because when we psychoanalyze them, yeah, why they gave me that dirty look, why? Because they're jealous. Yeah, and they're passive-aggressive, so they show their jealousy in this way and not in that way. That, that one's passive-aggressive. That one is bipolar, you know? And sometimes they're very ecstatic, and sometimes they're, they're kind of depressed. And that person over there, that one is depressed all the time. Just sign her off, okay? And, you know, and we have diagnoses for everybody. There was one family that came here, and uh, mother, dad, son, daughter. And the mother later 
told me, you know, my husband has this psychological thing. My daughter has this. My son has this. I have this. She's not a therapist, but that doesn't stop us from diagnosing other people's mental problems. Yeah? And imputing emotions. We know exactly what their emotion was. Yeah? I was offering you cherries from my garden, and you didn't accept them. That's because you think that I don't take care of my plants very well. And that isn't the only thing. You think I don't do anything very well. Okay. And now I see it so clearly in this bowl of cherries. Doesn't that happen? Okay. So distorted attention. Yes, we read other people's minds. We know exactly what their motivations are. And they always want to harm us. They don't appreciate us at all. In fact, nobody appreciates me enough. This is the story of my life. When I was a child... And this happened, and they just didn't appreciate. And then I grew up, and, you know, I was in the marching band in high school, and they didn't appreciate that either. Before that, I took ballet lessons. I had a little tutu. Yeah, remember tutus? They didn't appreciate that I was going to be a ballerina. Then they didn't appreciate how well I marched in the marching band. My whole life, nobody appreciates me enough. And I can tell by the way they look at me, because they don't look at me. (laughs) I'm in the room, and they say hello to everybody else, and they don't say hello to me. That's because they think they're big shots. They have some big university degree and they think they're at the top of the world. And so they don't even notice me. Okay. Yeah. Sarah Bernhardt here. Anytime you want. Okay. So we project motivations and meanings on other people's words and activities. We do this all the time. And we think that we are seeing people correctly. Hmm? This establishes the perfect setting for afflictions that haven't arisen to arise and for those that have arisen to increase. Definitely. However, when we train our minds to observe sense objects or including other people's actions and words, to observe these with mindfulness and wisdom, afflictions that haven't arisen do not arise, and the ones that have arisen subside. So when we train our mind, just, you know, somebody is speaking, and we just listen. That is sound. Okay. 
we don't impute more meaning than please have some watermelon. We don't, you know, somebody says, please have some watermelon. And then we impute all sorts of meaning to how they said, please have some watermelon. And so you train your mind, you know, I'm just hearing sound, that's all. I don't have to make a story about the sound. I don't have to make a story about this person's facial expression. Yeah, I don't have to make a story about the fact that they wiped the table, but they left crumbs in front of my place. Yeah, have you ever noticed that? Yeah, it's always in front of where I sit, not anybody else's place. (sighs) Okay, and that is more evidence for how nobody appreciates me. Yeah. So forget... Huh? That and the cold pizza. Yes, a cold pizza, definitely. They did that because they know I don't like it. Yeah. And then they added extra oil to it because they know (laughs) I don't like that either. (laughs) Okay. For example, based on seeing a car as inherently existent, we see its marvelous qualities as existing in the car itself. Okay. In fact, distorted attention has exaggerated the car's good qualities and ignored its faults, making the car appear 100% desirable in our eyes. Okay. So especially when you have a certain kind of job, you have to drive a certain kind of car. Yeah. There was one man who came when I was in Seattle. He was a doctor, and he drove an old beat-up car. And like he was telling me, (laughs) he goes into the hospital, everybody stares at him because he's driving this old car. Yeah, and doctors aren't supposed to drive old cars. Yeah, And so if you have a certain kind of job, then you need to marry a certain kind of person that matches the image that you have because you have that kind of job. And you have to have the car that matches your image. Yeah, the shoes. The watch, oh my God, you know, you have to have the watch that, you know, especially if you have a high-class job, you have to have the watch that matches it. Yeah, Rolex, gold, yeah, you can't have in some little something watch. Yeah, and so you have to have all these accoutrements that, that match the image you're creating according to the kind of job you have. And so you see things and you exaggerate their qualities because these objects don't just have, you know, whatever. They have status inside of them. Okay. So if I buy a this or a that, or I go out with or marry a person that is like this, 
Yeah, then it all comes together to create who I am and my image. Okay. That's also phony, isn't it? Totally phony baloney. Okay. So our attachment for this car that we exaggerated uh, about explodes and we must buy it. By pausing to do some analysis, we will begin to see that distorted attention is fabricating the car's qualities and its desirabilities, and our life will be fine without buying that car. If we do the analysis. If we don't, we get the car. Yeah, and we get the watch and we get the this and that. The surroundings in which we live may contain many of the objects, detrimental social influences, and verbal stimuli that trigger our afflictions. For this reason, the great masters advise uh, avoiding environments that trigger our afflictions. This is done not because those objects and people are bad, but because our afflictions are as yet uncontrolled. Living in an environment where distractions and commotion are minimal enables us to focus on developing counterforces to afflictions. Once these are strong, our external surroundings will not affect us as much. Okay, and then there's a a reflection. Okay, so this is for your meditation in the next week. See the nice cup I have? Yeah, this indicates that I have a certain status. <laughs> yeah, they don't give this kind of cup to everybody. It's a big cup. It's bright colored. Unfortunately, I don't like this shade of pink. But win some and lose some. But I must be somebody because I have a fancy cup. I have a lid on my cup. Now, do you have a lid on your cup? That's because you aren't as important as I am. Okay. Sometimes they give me a thermos, too. <laughs> okay, reflection. What kind of media are you exposed to throughout your day? Internet? TV, news, movies, smartphone, computer, advertising, billboards, magazines, and so forth. Okay, so really think about your relationship to the media and what you are exposed to every day. Okay, two, how does each of these influence your thoughts and the decisions you make? Do they have a deleterious effect? For example, how do the sex and violence in movies influence your mind? Do you compare your body with the pictures in magazines and other media and feel that you're not attractive? Does watching people fighting in movies rev up your adrenaline and provoke hostility in your mind? Okay, very interesting to look at this. It's got to, 
because otherwise we wouldn't watch it. Yeah, the people who who make movies and and do media sorts of things, every few minutes they have to create some kind of crisis in it, so that people still keep looking. If there's no crisis in the 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 people, you know, in the even the advertisement or whatever, then uh, you know, and and people aren't going to watch. So then you get the you watch this and you get the feeling, you know, that this is how life is. Yeah. And uh, I, I just remember one time I was staying at somebody's uh, flat while they were away, and there were children playing below, and one kid said, "Let's play divorce." Yeah. How many TV programs did that child watch? And this was his understanding of marriage. Yeah. So they were too young to play let's get married, so they they played let's get divorced. Then you can fight. So that's what what relation, you know, that's how they get their their view of of how things are. Okay. And then three, what would a healthy relationship with the media look like in your life? What do you need to do to bring that about? Yeah. So not only as people who are consumers of media, but I also often wonder about the people who create the media. Okay. For example, people who have kids, why do they create some of the media for kids that is so damaging and harmful? Yeah. I mean, think of the cartoons we all watched when we were little. What did you get out of those cartoons? Yeah, kids were always fighting, weren't they, in the cartoons? And you laughed whenever somebody got slugged. Huh? Whenever somebody was embarrassed, somebody laughed in your cartoons when you're five years old. <laughs> and then when it happens in real life, we laugh at, at people's misfortune too. And I was thinking about... We have one, one young man come here uh, who was in Aurora during the shootings in the theater. Remember, they were showing Spider-Man? No, no, Batman. Okay, yeah, I got my men confused. Um, so they were showing a Batman thing, and this guy came in and started shooting. And I was thinking, you know, Bat Batman is a violent movie, okay? So when you're sitting there and you're watching the screen and the screen has violence on it and people are beating each other up and zapping each other, I don't know what goes on with in Batman's universe. I never saw that movie and don't want to. But anyway, okay, when you watch it on the screen, the violence is entertaining. When somebody came into the theater and did the violence for real, 
it became horrific. She, at the time he was shooting, he was having horrific violence, and the screen was playing entertaining violence. Okay, what does that do to our minds? Yeah, when violence becomes entertaining. Yeah, and why don't you see when that guy came in and started shooting up the place? Why didn't you think that that's so entertaining? Well, because be real people get hurt. Well, you don't think watching that stuff hurts your mind and conditions your mind in going in the wrong direction? Why do we think violence is amusing? Okay. I think I better stop. (laughs) Okay, but as you can see, and as I often say, I think the Dharma teachings uh, are very involved with society today. And that uh, social commentary goes very well with the Dharma teachings. Yeah. And that we can't say, oh, Dharma is just nice. We do it in a very uh, sweet kind of place uh, where we're all holy beings and there's no media and there's no detrimental influences and, you know, the stuff like that. And society is something else. No, I think what Dharma teachings apply to is the world around us and to our own mind and how do we navigate all of this yeah five of the six in this list are very timeless the fourth one verbal stimuli seems really contemporary but i'm wondering if in ancient indian times it was maybe the theater or something like that or idle talk yeah for sure I mean, ancient India, that's how a lot of education happened. The Jataka tales, Dharma education, was through acting out the Jataka tales in in theater. And that's how you taught the Dharma, okay, to the lay public who didn't read or write. Yeah. So, yeah, media, I think there's different kinds of media in different societies. But it's there. Mm-hmm. How are we able to explain purification pertaining to seeds? Is it seed of affliction or seed of karma? Or seed of affliction only able to be uprooted by wisdom? Okay, when we do purification, it's mostly the seeds of karma that we're purifying. The seed of affliction is only uprooted once we have the wisdom realizing emptiness. We can reduce the power of the seed of affliction beforehand. And when we do purification practice and we have sincere regret for the motivating afflictions of our actions, that brings more awareness to us, to our actions, and so that the seed of afflictions you know, isn't activated as much and perhaps isn't as strong. But it can always get stronger. Mm-hmm. 
Nuns are better than monks in terms of studies and performing tasks. However, emotional trouble is in the nunnery seems to happen more often. There seems to be less complications with monks in this regard. The above, the above is from Shanti Deva's Guide to Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Yes. Is, is it there are more seeds of affliction in women? Oh, God. Do we have to go through this again? <laughs> no, there are not more seeds of afflictions in women than in men. And no, the women do not quarrel uh, as much as men do. Okay, or more than men do. These are all stereotypes that have been passed down from generation to generation. Oh, yeah, you did a series of BBCs about this, didn't you? Yeah. So it's what does what do people Google to find her BBCs? Are women more emotional than men? Yeah. I've heard that so much, you know. Women are more emotional than men. And then I have so many examples of, you know, men in emotional trouble just totally breaking down. Yeah. Anyway, we won't go into that right now. But sentient beings are sentient beings. We all have 84,000 afflictions. Nobody has 84,001. Okay, so our afflictions may have different varieties. Some people are more prone to one affliction than another affliction. Okay, but we all have the seeds of all of them. Okay. And our afflictions manifest and create a mess, don't they? You also have to remember with Shanti Deva, he was speaking to a group of monks. Okay. Hmm? I think if he was speaking to a group of nuns, he would have said something different. Okay, we'll dedicate. <laughs>